Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. Our last episode, which you'll find in your Local Zero feed called Moving On Up, was all about the challenge of decarbonising transport. It was about the changes needed to infrastructure and policy, and of course, to the choices that we all make in our day-to-day lives. And today we're zooming right in on some of the most local and the most controversial transport actions taking place, low traffic neighbourhoods or LTNs. An LTN is a group of residential streets where temporary or permanent measures restrict the passage of through motor traffic. That's car traffic to you and I. And where they've gotten off the ground, they've made real progress in reducing emissions and increasing uptake of active travel, like walking or cycling. But they often face substantial resistance from local people. Today, we're going to be hearing from two people who've been strong campaigners for low traffic neighbourhoods, and we'll be unpacking their personal experiences and seeing whether it's possible to build wider support for street level climate action. So as always, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of the podcast and ask questions or suggest topics for future episodes. A really great way of doing this is to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. And thanks to Gray Brov, who left a four out of five star review and also suggested he'd like to hear more from battery research scientists and engineers. So that's noted, Gray. Uh, It's a really interesting area. So we'll get into that soon and hopefully turn that into a five star review. Reviews and suggestions are always, always welcome as our five-star ratings. But joking aside, we love getting reviews because it helps us understand what's helpful and interesting to you. So please do leave one. And remember, as always, you can tweet us. We are at energyrev underscore UK and make sure you use our hashtag local zero. Shortly, we'll welcome back Leo Murray from Climate Change Charity Possible and also bring in John Burke, former local councillor to Hackney and cabinet member for energy transport and waste. But first, as always, let's bring in our faithful wingman, Fraser Stewart. Fraser, welcome. Hi, team. How's everybody doing? Good. good yeah. Good. How about yourself? Oh, existing, you know. <laughs> I, I don't want to be negative. The clocks have changed. The days are longer. It's lighter in the evenings. I'm I'm having a good good time just now, and I'm very excited for our episode today. Absolutely, yeah. No, I've been looking forward to this one, and you know, it's, in fact, just just logging on this morning, doing a bit of background sort of homework and research on this. It is such a live topic. The, the news feed. You type in low traffic neighbourhoods into Google News, you are absolutely bombarded with news articles. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I feel like low traffic neighbourhoods is is a new way of talking about something that is for many people sort of part of their everyday life. So for people that don't live perhaps in cities, they're used to living like this, but we've sort of had to, I feel like our uh, transport patterns have changed so much and we've just seen the rise of the automobile in recent years and especially in cities that we now need to, to use these kind of new terminologies that can bring us back to a way of life that we probably all remember when we were growing up. Yeah, I mean, the LTN as a concept isn't new. We'll hear a bit more about this from our guests later on. But it really sort of, uh, I guess, entered the mainstream over the past year with with COVID, with social distancing, 
and I guess a growth of use of local spaces as opposed to city centers. I'm trying to make the division between home and work. People were having to find ways of expanding that capacity of our local neighborhoods. So uh, yes, LTNs are in vogue and some people like them and some people really do not. They are, they are, and it's and it's that way where we know you see a lot of these uh, these makeups and these designs of what neighbourhoods could look like. We know from COVID that people are open to the idea. We know that generally, when you pitch the idea, people like it. They they want to do it. The question is, how do we sort of seize this formative moment and turn that into lasting behavioural change and infrastructural change as well? Because it's not just about taking cars off the streets, right? There's a whole lot of of other things that have to go along with that. Yeah, absolutely. I was. Thinking- Thinking back to our last episode where Leo was talking about the way in which the low traffic neighborhoods are changing our everyday lives and how we saw, you know, kids out on the street a lot more. And I was just thinking, you know, when I was when I was a kid, we used to do that. So we used to, all the kids from, um, from down the street, we used to play cricket on our street. Cars actually were a really, really important part of that because you used to get, I think, 20 points if you hit a car, 40 if you <laughs> hit a house, 60 if you break a window. 50 for know. a windscreen. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, obviously an integral part in the way that possibly they wouldn't be in a low traffic neighborhood. Um, my extended family live on the outskirts of Edinburgh and they live in a small village that's been designed in a way to prevent through traffic. So it's not a low traffic neighborhood in and of itself. There are cars present and people living there certainly drive, but you don't get any through traffic because it's been designed with that, I guess, that kind of different lifestyle in mind. But unfortunately, not everywhere has. The, the key difference to this, we're all familiar with pedestrianized town and city centers often that is how our towns and cities now planned out these are pedestrianized suburbs pedestrianized you know neighborhoods so it's about telling people they can no longer use their cars in the same way if they're wanting to go from a to b they've got to go via c yeah and it's also not necessarily just about when we're talking about action at that level in the suburbs it's not necessarily just about uh, low traffic neighborhoods as we understand them in the cells there are there are other things that are taking place so last time i chatted with leo who's on the episode today um who mentioned a woman called brenda push who started the first uh, the first parklet in Hackney. She's kind of since pushed that movement to get more small green spaces on on streets in different places across the the UK, which I think is a, a fascinating way to do things. That's not necessarily just tied to, to cars and traffic, although that's a fundamental part of it, but also about bringing nice green recreational space to roads and streets that have been dominated by cars in recent years. So I thought we'd go back out and we'd catch up with Brenda, who we're about to speak with in the episode today, which I think is a, a really a really amazing thing that she's doing as well. So I'm uh, Brenda Pesh. I actually tried to get an online permit, parking permit, and they have they had a hundred models of cars, literally hundreds of models of cars that you could tick but there was no option for a bench or a bike park. So I wrote to them and I said, can I just come into the neighborhood office and give you my check for a bench? And they said, no, you can't. You can't have a permit for a bench. It's not allowed. But I just, I had already planned I was going to do it. So this was just to establish the stage that I had actually applied for permission. And I had it in writing that I had applied. I decided I had to do it because otherwise it was never going to happen. And I'd be thinking, looking back at my life and thinking, you know, I never even tried it. And I said, I've got to do it while I've still got energy in me. So I got, I bought everything. So it was all bought stuff. I bought a bench. I bought a beautiful umbrella. I bought very luxurious grass. Well, it was artificial grass. That was the, the best one. It took up the size of a car. So it was actually two meters by four meters, exactly the size of a car. And I put two cast iron planters on either side so that cars couldn't reverse into it. And because I was doing it as a campaign, I had an opening. I cut a ribbon, we we had a big party. I had a friend, Caroline Russell, who's a GLA member, a green GLA member. She came and cut the ribbon officially and she gave a speech because I wasn't ashamed of what I was doing. And I didn't want to do it in a way that or only, or if she does it quietly, then she can get away with it because I wanted there to be a process. It wasn't just for me. I wanted a system to be in place. So that that's what it was about. 
Is that the reason then that you didn't just apply and pretend that you wanted it for a car and then and then do it that way? You made a point of saying, this is what it has to be. So it was for a system. I wanted a system. Two thirds of, of households in Hackney do not have a car. So the number that do not have a car are double the number that do. So it's unjust that the entire curbside space is taken over by parked cars. And parked cars are there for 95% of the time. So it's a huge waste of space. And it's also given to them very cheaply. So the annual permit on my street is £39 a year, which is extraordinarily cheap, considering it's London Fields, E8, a very, very um, popular area. So it's ridiculous to give an annual permit for that really, really ridiculously cheap price. And then not to allow that space to be used for community purposes for any price. I mean, I would have paid £200 a year for that space, but I wasn't allowed it at any price. I could only put a car. It had to have MOT and it had to have VED. So you can't have a pretend car. It had to be a car that was actually polluting and actually able to kill as far as I could. Uh, that was my interpretation. So long as you have something that can kill and pollute, you can have that space. But if you put something benign like a bench and flowers, you're not allowed. So it was the injustice of it as well. What did the council have to say when you finally unveiled it in the press, when you had people around? Okay, so the council only heard about it when the press started making a noise about it. I put a big notice on it that said, people parking bay. And I said, please park yourself here or your shopping or your bike or your drink and just park yourself here. This is for you. There were mothers using it to sit down with their kids, to take a rest. Older people were using it to have a rest while going shopping. Joggers were using it, you know, to take a rest. Everyone was using it to take a rest. And then people started sellotaping notes, saying how lovely they thought, saying, thank you, this is so lovely. So I put out a visitor book. And within a few weeks, four visitor books had filled up. And I want to make a book of the comments in the visitor book because they're so interesting. But anyway, so the council got wind of it. Well, obviously they did. And they were considering their action. And then I think it took three weeks for them to put a notice on the bay to say, would the, the person who put this out please remove this paraphernalia, whatever. Otherwise, we will dispose of it and we will charge you. We will charge the owner for the cost. So then I had to make a decision. So I set up a petition to allow it to remain. And it quickly got 1,000 signatures. And then the council didn't relent. I actually went to a lawyer as well, you know, to get an eviction stay. And they did give me a stay for another couple of weeks. But then it was going to become too expensive to fight it. So I decided to remove it, put it in, in storage. But then I moved it to a different location. I said, let me... I said, well, it was very popular in London Fields, but London Fields has a high footfall. People in the, in, on trend, in a sense. So they would be more open to something quite radical of the sort. So then I've moved it to Glynn Road, which is in Lower Clapton. So it's a quiet residential road. I wondered how it would work there. People just loved it. People were just totally taken up by it and with using it and watering the plants. And eventually someone sent me a message and said, you've got an eviction notice. And the notice said, this is an illegal parklet. It needs to be removed immediately, forthwith. It needs to be removed forthwith. The interesting thing was that locals, people, didn't know what a parklet was. No one knew. They just saw this bench and these flowers and these planters appearing. But they didn't know that's what it, because I had called it a, a people parking bay because parklet is an Americanism. So I didn't think people would understand. But when the council called it a parklet, people were going, parklet, is that a thing? Is parklet a thing? And how can a parklet can be illegal? So people were really interested in the terminology. It created a lot of talk, which was very interesting. And eventually it was dismantled and I had to take it apart. However, there was a lot of media coverage, local media coverage, the Evening Standard, the Hackney Gazette, the Cambridge News as well. They were all saying, what a shame. Well, they were portraying it as a battle between a loan campaigner and the council. 
the thing is, I, I actually have a good relationship with the council. So I was defying them. And it was basically because they weren't moving fast enough. They were building one parklet every two years. And I, and I just thought, no, 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 you can't, that, that's just ridiculous. So I used to bump into them on the street and I used to say, read the visitor books, read the visitor books. This, this thing has got such huge potential. You've got to give it a chance. You've got to have a pilot. You've got to try it out. And eventually, they, they put it in their manifesto for next year. So they had a local election manifesto and they said, if we win the elections, we're going to do parklets. So that was one year later, one year later. That was absolutely amazing to see that. So I was really, really delighted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So they took it into their, into their manifesto. They eventually won them round. What kind of parklets have popped up since? So there's now eight community parklets across Hackney and they're all very unique. So you've got one that is a herb garden and people come and pick their herbs there for their dinner and then they chat to each other. And the lady, one of the one of the women who put it up, she, she even got a proposal of marriage from someone who just loved what she was doing, but she was already married. But it just showed how much people just loved the idea. Or oh, there was one that was built by two neighbours who um, had no garden because they lived up in a flat, they lived on the higher floors, they had no garden. In fact, that helped them get to know each other because they, they only set, knew each other to say hello and then they got together to build the garden and they became good mates. The garden then became the centre of a street party they had for their street. They ended up lobbying to have a street filter closure and they got one. So, you know, from, from a parklet, they went to a filter and now their street is a lovely, quiet street. So this thing becomes a catalyst for something much bigger, for people to say, actually, we want more from our street. So a group of us grassroots activists have got together and formed the London Parklets campaign. It's on Twitter, on Instagram. We will have a website and it's basically campaigning London wide and working jointly so that we're stronger to uh, have a parklet permit system across London. What is your best advice to people who want to get a parklet off the ground? It's not easy, but I would say start talking to your local authority. Start talking to your active travel people because they are most likely to get a process in place. And we need peer pressure. They should phone up Hackney Council and ask them how they do it and get advice from them because Hackney have successfully run this programme. This, this is a very unusual thing for a council because it's giving up a bit of control of the street to local people and the council are very wary of that. But I think if a momentum builds up, we'll get councils all over the country giving permission for parklets and having a parklet permit system. That's what we hope for. Hi, I'm Leo Murray. I am Director of Innovation at the Climate Change Charity Possible. I'm John Burke. I'm probably most well known for having been the former London Borough of Hackney Cabinet Member for Energy Waste, Transport and Public Realm, where I delivered lots of uh, new school streets and uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. So you've obviously, you've just had Brenda on who is a hero of mine and I know um, John and John and Brenda have history as well because uh, Brenda was a... I'm, I'm a hero of Brenda's. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Brenda's a productive irritant, as my mum would put it. You know, the grain of sand in the oyster that the pearl forms around, right? The link between Brenda's work and my work is I think, you know, Brenda and encourage people to think uh, about the public realm in um, kind of different ways and you know in ways that might you know move away from the view of it particularly our streets as you know for the sole purpose of the storage of cars you know there are fifteen thousand kilometers of roads in london and i think people like brenda have encouraged us to think imaginatively about how they might be reinvented and that led directly to my work in creating hackney's first 21st century streets on the same or one of the same roads that brenda pushed for a um you know, a parklet. I think parklets are a good example of what communities can achieve and what the limits are. 
I think that the main role of Parklets in Hackney was to show where there was some latent demand for the transformation of the public realm. For it to make a really big difference in terms of amenity value for residents, you've got to kind of pull up some hard standing and create neighbourhood parks, whether that's a build-out into the lane or where it's the end of a road or there's a modal filter occupying a significant proportion of the you know the public carriageway. And for households that don't have gardens, school children that have low access to, to green space, etc., etc. So I think that's a really kind of important um, component of LTMs. It won't merely be about preventing the use of neighbourhoods as pressure release valves or as throughput for vehicles, but actually radically reimagining how the public realm looks for the benefits of residents. And we also know that by increasing the quantum of green infrastructure in the urban environment, we can mitigate against the effects of increasing temperatures in our cities as well. So for me, I live in I live in the south side of Glasgow. If I was going to see a low traffic neighbourhood in my area, what does that look like? What would I what would I experience differently? It would mean you know, modal filters, but to allow... So those for... big bollards, are we talking about the big bollards that you get in the middle of the road? Well, it depends. Modal, fil- modal filters take a variety of different forms. The older ones are um, complete filters and they prohibit access altogether to all vehicles. Then there are a kind of interim type of modal filter with fixed bollards that can be removed by emergency services. And then there's the more modern variety uh, which are the ones operated by automatic number plate recognition systems or ANPR, as people will have seen elsewhere. And they're the ones that I delivered in Hackney overwhelmingly, and they allow for the free transit of emergency service vehicles. You know, most people will live in areas where there are numerous modal filters that have just become part of the street furniture and may, as a result, even live in a kind of micro low traffic neighbourhood, which they're not even aware of. Yeah, there are t- tens of thousands of modal filters yeah, yeah, yeah. In, um, in cities and towns across the UK. But that's essentially the, 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 the role that they undertake. And uh, the main reason for the delivery of low traffic neighbourhoods more recently has been to address the issue of a very significant increase, in part, you know, uh, the, the circumstantial evidence would suggest, as a result of the, the massive explosion in the use of sat-navs and wayfinding apps of private motor vehicles using residential roads to circumvent an overloaded main road network. Who are those arguing against LTNs then, and why? Well, it, it, there's a very broad spectrum and um, st- uh, strange bedfellows. You might describe some of some of the people in this very broad spectrum. So, you know, you, you have the the usual suspects, the uh, the Licensed Taxi Drivers Association, you know, at, at one end. So black taxi drivers and the motor lobby, Association of British Drivers and things, it's become expressed in the form of these one groups. So you've got one Wandsworth and uh, one Chiswick and so on. Nominally, they're not connected with each other. But actually, when you look at the individuals who are involved, there are strong links to uh, UKIP. There, so that that's, that's the natural tendency who will always oppose any sort of um, traffic reduction measure. But then... Leo, we've just, just, just to butt in, I think... We canvassed opinion from uh, some local residents, uh, got a sense of, and, and again, we don't know their political affiliation whatsoever. That wasn't part of the um, you know, the, the survey. But we got a sense of what concerned Mr. and Mrs. Bloggs, Mr. and Mrs. Jones next door. Some of the stuff that was coming out, common themes that, that, that started to emerge. I think the school run, uh, people concerned if they're running local businesses about uh, footfall, if I can just run a f- th- through a few of these and, and John and you can come back on them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Many people actually were quite inclined to move towards a sort of more active travel, but but blamed circumstances, whether it's uh, weather or poor uh, cycling infrastructure. I think the kind of general impression that we got was not what you've just outlined, but people feeling like they couldn't make that jump. And often it was because there wasn't a ready-to-go alternative be that cycling, walking and all the rest. So I just wanted to get your, your take on that from, from, from John and yourself, please. There is a feature of the psychology of change. Change is difficult, right? And a lot of people, um, their first instinct to any proposal for change is to kind of pick holes in it, see, see that, rec- you know, imagine downsides. The fascinating thing about low traffic neighbourhoods with respect to these types of concerns, which, you know, a perfectly reasonable, legitimate concerns that you that you hear from people is that there's a really consistent pattern, which this happens every time a, a traffic reduction measure is proposed. 
it mobilizes a minority of people who are super angry about it, take it very personally. And then most people in the middle who are kind of equivocal about it, like have questions and things, then tend to back out of that debate and it becomes dominated by the loudest voices. And that creates a sort of perception of a common sense view that everyone thinks this is terrible, even though actually when you survey people, it's a minority. But the key thing is that actually those people who sit in the middle who are like, I like the idea of less traffic, but what about this? What about the school run? What about that? Nobody ever wants these things removed afterwards. So if you look at what happened in Walden Forest, Clyde, who's the councillor who, who, who led this, he had death threats. You know, he had thousands of people marching in the streets of Walden Forest, carrying coffins, the death of the, the death of the area, you know, shopkeepers concerned. And then well, I'm, Matt, I'm sure we can turn to John on this, who, who, who no doubt has been in the firing line. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So look, it led to, uh, you know, now Walden Forest, they survey residents, fewer than 2% of people want to go back. So this, the process of change is difficult and disruptive and that is mostly what you see when you when you um you know when you consult residents about proposals for change what you get reflected back is a lot of anxiety about change per se yeah well i mean i think loss aversion is a powerful force and it expresses itself in in different ways one of the things that the, the public's reaction to these changes tells us more than anything is how poor again i think this is reflected most recently in the public accounts committee um 45th, I think, report on UK progress towards decarbonisation is the low level of engagement that there's been from the state with the public on you know, the extent to which averting you know, a global warming-induced collapse of society, and which is no hyperbole, you know, this is kind of widely regarded as a scientific fact, will require us to make significant changes uh, in the way that, that we live. Um, you know, 20 years ago in London, less than 20% of children um, were driven to school. And, you know, in some parts of London now, that's above 80%. So when we talk about the school run as if, you know, this is some sort of immutable law of educating children that you must drive them, actually, the school run, you know, accounts in many cities for 25% of peak time traffic and is a significant contributor to congestion on our roads. That needs to change. Let's take it a step further and and I'm going to reflect on some of my own experiences as well because I think, you know, we all know we need change. We know that we need to address the transport sector. We know that we need to move forward if we want to really deliver net zero and meet these targets that are absolutely imperative to a better, more sustainable future, right? So I don't think that's the question. But I want to bring up issues of inequalities and how we're designing our low traffic neighborhoods, not whether they are a good thing or not, but how we can make sure that they are fair for everyone. And, you know, I have young children. I have four-year-old twins. So I travel around a lot on buses with my family. And when I was in London with buggies, I've been waiting at bus stops. There might be the infrastructure there. I've had to wait sometimes for 45 minutes and wait for four or five buses to go past because I cannot get on because there's another buggy on the bus and I am not a prioritized customer. Add to that the fact that I then got young children I might be standing in the rain with them. And then other people say, well, you know, you can get on and fold up your buggy on the bus. Well, let me tell you, you try and do that on a stationary floor, let alone trying to get your kid on a seat when no one gets up on the bus for you whilst trying to do it moving along. So, you know, there are there are inherent problems in shifting people out of cars where we could be penalizing those people who are least able to do it. So it's not a case of we don't need these neighborhoods. We need to make sure that there are alternative solution. So what I want to understand um, from both of you is what could this future look like that doesn't just put an intervention in because we know it's needed. We know that we need to reduce traffic in the streets. We know we don't want our neighborhoods to become public bypasses. That is clear enough. But how can we make sure that these are done in a way that doesn't just penalize those people who are time poor often paying more for public transport or paying maybe above what they can afford to um, and uh, struggling already with a system that has not been explicitly designed around their needs. Okay, so, I mean, I think the answer to that is is that we need to make um, both public transport affordable and widespread, but also, you know, the, the cost of driving should reflect their broader social and environmental costs. And I think those two things are, you know, related. The fact of the matter is, is that we've consistently made it easier and cheaper for people to acquire a car and externalize the costs associated both social and environmentally 
with the operation of cars to the cars to the rest of society, whilst at the same time systematically underfunding uh, public transport systems, which actively discourage people from using them further. Increasing costs, reducing frequency. Absolutely, reducing and we've seen that over you know the past three decades or or more in fact and more recently through you know 11 years worth of, of fuel duty cuts which you know reduced the, the the marginal operating cost of a motor vehicle and encourage people to use when they've got one to use it even more than they did previously so we've got policy you know going in the wrong direction in many ways and you know low traffic neighborhoods to some degree help reverse that process but you know they can't achieve all of the outcomes we're seeking to achieve on their own, they need to be part of a broader range of policy measures, which, as I noted earlier, include road user pricing, affordable widespread public transport, active travel infrastructure, and other measures designed to curtail demand for superfluous motor vehicles. So, so they're, not, they're not enough on their own? No, they're not. You know, no one intervention can do every job. If you look at something like London's congestion charge, again, it was hugely controversial when it was being proposed. You, could all, you couldn't find anybody who would stick up for it, right? Ken Livingstone was really on his own. He brought it in six months later. The majority of Londoners supported it because they saw that it was working. And he used the proceeds to invest in bus services. And bus ridership went up in London when it has fallen in every other city. Ken Livingstone added 100,000 kilometres to the bus network during his two-may oral time. So, but, 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 so but there, I, but, Matt, I want to bring it back to low-traffic neighbourhoods, though, Becky, because you're, you know, you, you, often they're perceived only as a stick. They make it harder to drive. And that's true. And that is part of how they have such a powerful effect on getting people to walk and cycling is by just reducing the utility of uh, a private motor traffic, right? So your car becomes less useful if you live in a low traffic neighborhood. But what they also do by transforming the public realm to make it safer and more attractive for walking and cycling, they also act as a carrot and they draw people in. So where people say that I have no alternative, I mean, literally in America, some cities don't have a pavement. So they, that is literally true. That is not the case in London. <laughs> no, and, and Leo, I, I absolutely take take the point. I just want to take one small step back to, to your example of the congestion charge, and you know, very good point about you know this this stick of the congestion charge raised a carrot in terms of improved investment in uh, in public transport, particularly buses. Now that that strikes me as the wrong way round, particularly in the case of LTNs. You've got to make provision for the alternative prior to them making the intervention. So when you do display, and I take your point that you've just made, that it can act as both carrot and stick. But if you if you take away that opportunity to move via the car, you have to put in place provision for something else. And ideally you do that in parallel or before you make the intervention. And I think what we're seeing in the context of COVID, and again, I'll, I'll invite comment from John particularly on this, that councils were, were, and I don't want to use the word rush because it makes it sound like it wasn't thought through, and I'm not suggesting that, but they they were rushing to put in place things like pop-up cycle lanes so there was that alternative. So looking forward, we've got the, the clock is counting down on net zero. How do we, when, and how do we put in place those alternatives to make things like LTNs make more sense to everybody? Okay, so what I would say is I'm not convinced by the argument that that is the right way around the way that you suggest. Firstly, because the powers to deliver some of the carrots are not at the disposal of the highways authorities who are responsible for low traffic neighborhoods. Now, I would argue that the local authorities that have delivered them are doing their absolute utmost to address this pressing environmental challenge with the powers that they have. Low traffic neighborhoods don't displace traffic. They place traffic, they place it on the main road network, the through traffic that was built for it, right? If we then subsequently find, because the number of cars on our streets have doubled to 40 million in 30 years, that there are too many cars for the main road network, then the answer to that problem is demand management for the main road network, not to turn people's neighborhoods into a pressure release valve, right? So I think local authorities are doing what they can with the powers that they have. But I was also clear that there's therefore a responsibility for City Hall, which in my view has taken its foot off the pedal, if you'll excuse the pun, of dealing with an overloaded main road network because our communities have absorbed the full increase in driving on London's roads over the last decade. So, you know, if we waited around for the, the powers that can deliver some elements of this change to deliver this change, we'd have neither congestion charging, road user pricing or low traffic neighbourhoods because we'd be in a Mexican standoff with the other 
tiers of the state all saying you move first so you know local authorities have moved and now it's the duty of you know strategic uh, executive mayoralties um highways england and um, transport for london uh, and other relevant bodies to do what they all okay so th- there needs to be more more of a joined up approach from all, all actors across the governance uh, landscape I th- well i think the joined up element of it is you know people hate this expression but i think to some degree that's for the birds i think certain tiers of government need to use the powers they've got and other tiers need to be able to respond to that in environmental policy making and this is true of surface transport emissions as much as anything you know if you give politicians an opportunity to sit round write reports spend time in meetings talking about what they're going to do they're going to, they're going to do that before delivering action on these matters and you know the reams of decarbonization strategies that exist across this country with no commensurate level of action are testament to that <laughs> well said john i think people need to act when people act to address the root causes of surface transport emissions there is a reaction to that from you know groups of people who've gotten used to the operation of the road network as it was now i understand that change is difficult for those people what i'm not going to do is sit down and tell drivers that there's a solution to the problems that we face that involves them being able to do exactly what they did previously because there isn't and you know that's not my subjective view if we take a look at the six carbon budget of the climate change committee it's very clear that not only do we need to fully electrify every last vehicle on the road but even in their balanced decarbonisation pathway, we need to eliminate close to 15% of the miles currently driven on the, our roads by 2050. In London alone, that amounts to 4 billion miles a year, which is conveniently enough the last 10 years increase in driving. That's what we're doing in, in local authorities in the capital. And nobody, I think, ever argued that reversing the inducement of demand for the use of our residential road by cars, which has been incentivized by sat-navs, was ever going to be easy. Decarbonization at the level of the individual is very tricky, and we can expect that every time that we seek to alter people's lifestyles to bring us in line with our carbon budget, which is an absolute environmental necessity, we're going to experience this. Every local authority that's delivered LTNs in the country right, has done it in quite different ways. Some widely different ways some subtly different ways but they're all different and yet in every single instance where people can't bring themselves to object even to the principle of low traffic neighborhoods every single council without fail has been accused of rushing their implementation yeah yeah not implementing them properly undemocratic there are a thousand different ways to say i don't like low traffic neighborhoods and leo and i i think have heard at least 998 of them Let's let's touch back on one of the positives um, that Leo was talking about earlier. So earlier, Leo, you mentioned that once these things are implemented, you start to see kids playing in the street and the streets become a much friendlier place. I just want to contrast that with another perspective that we've that we've heard from on social media. And again, I've personally felt, which is when I am walking around places, sometimes I can feel less safe, particularly if it's at dark. I live really close to the train station, actually, in Glasgow. And I live in a very friendly neighborhood with lots of kids. And, you know, the street I live in, come Halloween, obviously not last year with COVID, but usually it's just full of kids dominating the streets, you know, celebrating these these events. I still feel unsafe when it's dark walking around. So I want to sort of touch back on this, this idea that they can be safer places, but when they're being implemented, are they being implemented in a way that, makes people feel safe and secure outside of their car because we know that cars aren't necessarily the safest things to be in but as we heard um on our last episode talking to debbie hopkins you know she was citing some work which shows that people do feel safer in their cars so how is safety being built into this i mean i think i think it's also important here to flag an important study from anna goodman and rachel aldred who've identified actually that the, the ltns have initially from this study uh, made uh, certainly in Waltham made made streets safer but again there's perception and reality and and this is a very very new space i mean i'm ple- i'm pleased you said that matt because yes actually objectively speaking low traffic neighborhoods do make people safer so that, that you know huge drops in pedestrian and cyclist collisions uh, casualties and for car passengers as well and no increase on other streets. Uh, well, that, well, actually, I'd add to that, Leo, that the largest falls in crimes on street in the Northern Forest study were 
of a violent and a sexual nature. That's right. You know, two of which disproportionately impact you know women on our on our streets. But I take Rebecca's point that there's a big gap between perception, there's a perception and yeah. reality, and I think there's probably a bit more work to be done on explaining why eyes on the street and more feet on the street are likely to make you more safer than people traveling past you in a car. But when we make these policies, we need to do so in an evidence-led way. And the evidence is clear in Waltham Forest, at least that within a year within the LTN, you know, crime fell by 10%, but in three years, that was up to 18%. And the largest drops were in violence and, and sexual crime. But on that issue, on the broader issue, because I, I think Leo makes a really good point about like the potential for amenity value of our streets when we introduce LTNs. Some of the guests here today will be um, familiar with the concept of trophic cascade. Everyone's seen the YouTube video of the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Absolutely fascinating. And I think we'll have to put a wee link into that um, on our social media for those that haven't. Yeah, great. Because I think trophic cascade is what we see when we introduce low traffic neighbourhoods, right? It's like reintroducing beavers to Yellowstone or the wolves. What we begin to see is an ecosystem, a social ecosystem, begin to grow up again in streets yes. that have become social deserts. People don't spend time speaking to their neighbours because the cars are rushing past and they can't hear themselves think. They don't let the kids play out. And one of the consequences of that in London is that you end up with the culture, which you've got four-year-old twins, Rebecca, so you won't be quite there yet. But you know, you will soon experience the hell that is play dates, right? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the problems of play dates is play dates are necessarily socially segregating the kids who go to the same schools together yeah. and share kind of similar cultures tend to play together whereas when most of the people in this room were kids and played out in the street the kids in the flats at the end of the road the kids whose parents rented the place the kids whose parents owned the house outright played together because that was who was there to play with and so the potential for increased social integration from the introduction of schemes that increase the number of children playing on streets safely, and we know that parents are much more likely to allow their children to play out if they feel they're safe on the street, is huge. And, you know, wherever we've introduced the new low traffic neighbourhoods in Hackney, we've seen that abundance of social life emerge. Now, I'm not going to tell you there are no externalities that arise from the operation of low traffic neighbourhoods, depending on what your perspective is. No. But what I am going to say is that the benefits from surface transport emissions to the social life of our cities, which have atrophied because of the growth of motor vehicle use, massively outweigh the disadvantages. And I think that we need to be led by the evidence. And just on a final point about inequality, it is really important to remember that the richest people in our society own the most motor vehicles and drive the most. And in fact, Londoners with an income of £100,000 plus are four times more likely to own a car than the lowest income households. And so the idea that somehow low traffic neighbourhoods penalise kind of like working class drivers it just simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny i'm afraid well you can always find outliers can't you and that and that's you know that's what people who oppose these things do they they, they find an example of somebody who is car dependent because of the the status quo the way that it's set up and will be disadvantaged by implementing these changes you know changes change right it, it changes the calculus of winners and losers and the status quo that we have chronically disadvantages a whole lot of people who are very marginalized right now. The fact that there are some people who've managed to uh, scrape together the beans to get a car and are now dependent on it, it's not a good argument. It sounds like we need to we need to shift the, the framing of this away from being just about cars, which I think a lot of the debate we hear, it fundamentally comes back to this idea of, you know, getting your car or not, to actually looking at how these interventions create those better futures that we all want. I mean, as John was talking about what's happening and these kind of social cascades, if you like, we were all nodding along like, this is a future I want. This is a future I want for my children. And I don't think that that's a future that anybody that that um, responded to us on, on social media when we were asking, you know, who disagrees with this? I don't think that's something that any of them seem like that they would be against. Um, so I'm wondering what role do we need to get communities and citizens and people to be playing along with councils in, in implementing this. And maybe Leo, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how we can bring different people together in shaping these um, so that we see and we're brought into this really exciting vision. I think there are, there are some lessons, there are some really key lessons which 
practitioners of urbanism, they all know already, right? And some of these things are things that we that we have failed to do or were unable to do, the local authorities were unable to do in 2020 because of the way that the funding was set out and the very, very short timeframes that people had to do it. But the, the first thing that you do is establish that there's a problem with the status quo um, and that the status quo continuing is not an option and it's not that's not something that people want. And so the first thing that you need to do is just to get everybody to collectively say what problems they have at the moment and what kinds of things they would like to see change. And so, you know, what you get back from that stuff very, very consistently is people want less traffic on their roads. They want cleaner air. They want less noise. And that's your starting point. Then you have basically you have a mandate to say, okay, so these are all objectives that people in the area have said they want. Now we look at the evidence, you know, what kind of interventions could we make to achieve those goals that you've all said that you share? That is by far the best way to go about this. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of what's happened, the emergency travel stuff wasn't able to kind of follow that course. But that that's step one. So, John, I'm conscious Leo's got to shoot. So I just wanted to to put it to you both just into the 20 words, no, no, uh, no more if possible. But what's the next step beyond LTNs? Where, where is this headed? Go on, Leo. I mean, listen, road user pricing. It's it's that that may not be the next step. That might be like a huge leap, but um, ultimately, that is where this is heading, right? Um, this is this is the beginning of turning the tide because vehicle miles driven on the UK's roads have increased in every year since the Second World War. Every year, bar one, we need to reverse that trend. And actually, this low traffic neighbourhoods signal an inflection point at which we, we're going to start to see traffic fall. You mean people paying for how much they use the roads? Pay for how much they use the roads, but it's commonly misunderstood. You know, we like transport for quality of life's idea that um, it would be more expensive to drive a car in a place with good public transport access levels, right? Good coverage, good frequency, you know. So there are a bunch of different components to road user pricing, but road user pricing, those are three words. <laughs> Thank you, Leo. And John, you've got the final word. Okay, low traffic neighbourhoods, as I've noted before, are part of a, a range of policy interventions that are required to significantly eliminate surface transport emissions. But I'll leave on the point that kind of Leo's just finished on uh, around kind of the necessity of, of road user pricing. We shouldn't assume for a moment that there's either costs for drivers associated with, say, road user pricing or no costs without road user pricing. In, I think, the third novel of um, Updike's Rabbit Quartet, there's this great line, and he says, if you live the life you want, somebody else will pay your price. And what we have at the moment is a situation in which people who drive externalise significant environmental and social costs to the rest of society. That many people drive in society makes that no less true. Um, it just makes it less popular to undertake interventions that discourage driving even more. Yeah, it just makes it normal. But the, the point is here is that at the moment, there is a price to be paid for driving. It's not borne overwhelmingly by people who benefit from the immunity value of driving. So it's 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 akin to the frequent flyer levy, but fre frequent driver levy is is kind of what you're driving at. I, I'm less interested in the specific operation of them than the principle. We you know we don't believe that people who smoke cigarettes should have a right to blow their smoke in other people's face, and for those people to bear the cost of that lifestyle choice. And we need to apply the same principle to driving. Leo, John, thank you very much for your for your time today. That was really fascinating. All right, no, thanks so much for having us on. Thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah, and we'll we'll see you uh, see you both again soon. I hope. Please don't have Leo on the next one. There'll be three in a row. <laughs> Bye, Joe. <Jay. laughs>Okay, so uh, Leo has has exited the uh, the room, but John has very kindly offered to hang around for our favourite bit of the show, which is future or fiction. Um, and as you know by now, uh, Fraser is our compare, the brains behind the operation. So without further ado, Fraser, it's over to you. Thanks very much, Matt. I thought that was a really great discussion, by the way, just before we get into it. But yes, for the uninitiated, future or fiction is a segment of the show where I present a new innovative idea to our guests, to the panel. And they decide if they think it's the future, in which case it's a, a new technology, it's a genuine innovation, or if they think I've completely pulled it out of my backside. In this episode, the innovation is called The Angels Share. 
Now, it's no secret to anyone who knows me, anyone follows me on social media, I'm a good Scottish boy, I love my whiskey. But what do we think of the following? A Scottish whiskey distillery has devised a combined heat and power plant that specifically harnesses the waste from producing whiskey to fuel a biomass generator for local power. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? John, what's your instinct on this? I think I've read that that's true. Uh, the mash that's left over is being used to, to power the distillery itself rather than more broadly in the community. But then I read a lot, so maybe I've just fabricated that entirely. <laughs> and John, you, you, you're a man in the know because you're involved with Hackney Light and Power. So, you know, this is this is your patch too. Is this something uh, Hackney's new whiskey distillery might be turning to? Listen, if Hackney hasn't already got a, a distillery, I'd be absolutely amazed. <laughs> and what I really like with this example is that kind of circular economy perspective, right? It's using the waste of the of the kind of product, you know, production process to then create or drive power that could be used, as you say, to, to power the distillery, or indeed, depending on how much is being produced, to feed into the grid or to support neighboring uh, neighboring buildings. I guess I don't really know much about whiskey. So this is my downfall. I know that, you know, energy from waste, absolutely, um, you know, future, future, well, not even future, present. And we know uh, biomass boilers, present. Um, what I don't understand enough about is the whiskey process. So this is where Fraser's really got one, one up on me again. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see, I did that on purpose because I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to sneak anything on transport past John and Leo. But I can I can do days on whiskey. What I didn't anticipate, which I should have, and that's completely on me, is that John knows everything about everything. John's John's <laughs> just read the share offer on this. One. <laughs> so so how about we have scores on the doors? John sounds like you're a solid yes. I think this is real. Okay. I think this is the future. Becky. Oh, absolutely, future for me. So I'm going to go future, but I I will be interested to hear where this is because some places this will really won't stack up. But yeah, sounds sounds like a really good good uh, good initiative. Yeah, well there are there are plenty of places where it's not feasible, where they're remote, where they're based on islands and stuff like that, and they're away from everything. That being said, the angels share whiskey distilleries powering themselves in local areas through biomass through the waste is the future, as I think we'd all already established. The combined heat and power plant in Rothes and Speyside will produce 7.2 megawatts of electricity and power approximately 9,000 local homes. Wow. The electricity generated will be fed directly into the national grid, offsetting an estimated 46,642 tonnes of CO2 emissions. So yes. Yeah, so that's big. Another reason to drink Scottish whiskey. Oh, yeah, as if you need any more reasons, Fraser. <laughs> um, good stuff. Well, thank you, John. Not at all. It was great fun. Thank you, Fraser. Excellent stuff. So another great episode wrapped up. Thanks to Brenda and John and Leo for some really fascinating conversation and some really inspiring futures. Remember to tweet us at energyrev underscore UK. Use our hashtag local zero if you want to ask us any questions or suggest topics that we might get to in future episodes. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening and bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.